Hello and welcome to the Engage and Quit podcast. This is part two of a AMA podcast where we were covering the month of July and August questions that were asked in those months about Nick's sermons in Ezekiel. So in the first part, we covered a lot of the questions from the sermons in the month of July. In this one, we're going to cover the rest of the questions. Plus, we'll have a kind of a quicker section at the end where we're just covering all the questions that we skipped when we were answering the questions a little bit more long form. So hope you enjoy this episode, part two of the July and August AMA questions. question. Can you speak to the balance of embracing God's revealed will while also believing, so this is similar to the, the question we asked a couple questions ago, but um, while also believing in the prophetic gifts of the spirit. I don't believe that you're saying that God doesn't work in the prophetic gifts, but rather that we shouldn't primarily ask for him to speak in that way. Is that accurate? I love this question. The answer is yes. <laughs> it's it's great to get answer, questions that are answered that, that way. That is what I mean. Yeah. So I said this in the sermon that even in the New Testament prophetic gift of prophecy, Right. The main emphasis is still not telling the future, but getting people to refocus on God's revealed will that they're not doing. Mm-hmm. Right. And even in some cases where it seemed like that, like for future telling was the case, um, it, it didn't matter. So, for, for example, there's one place where I think it's Ag- Agabus in the book of Acts tells Paul, hey, listen, Paul, I have this prophetic word that if you go to, is- to Jerusalem, they're going to tie you up and like you're going to be put in prison. Mm-hmm. And Paul's like, I know that. <laughs> you know, he's, he's like, that's not going to stop me. That and, closed you know, door. Yeah. yeah Ag- Agabus was like, well, you know, I'm going to tell him this prophecy. He's going to dodge a bullet. Mm-hmm. And Paul's like, listen, the Holy Spirit already told me. Everywhere I go, people are going right. to attack me and tie me up. You think this is news? Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't mean Agabus was a false prophet. It just means sometimes prophets get prophecies and they don't even really understand the significance of the prophecy. Right. The significance of that prophecy was he was going to say something. And in that presence, everybody's going to realize the significance that Paul was going to go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to go to Jerusalem and accidentally get arrested and tied up and imprisoned. He was free and he was going to go to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. And he was, he had the heart of a martyr to do it. And everybody who was there with Agabus, when he revealed that prophecy, understood the kind of man and the kind of faith Paul had. And Paul could turn to them and say, now you guys need to have that kind of faith. Yeah. And it inspired them. Right. And so the gift of prophecy, I think has a lot of possible uses, but I think a lot of it is encouragement and strengthening and a lot of that is encouragement and strengthening in the revealed will of God. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's very common. The gift of prophecy says, do this, don't do that. And we go, okay. Right. Yeah. Um, however, there have been prophecies that are warnings. Like, for example, in this, in the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about Jerusalem being destroyed, um, Christians took that as a prophecy. And when armies began to surround Jerusalem, they left. Hmm. And they survived. And it was tens of thousands of people yeah. that survived Titus's siege. Um, also, uh, when I think it's in the book of Acts, there is a prophecy about a famine attacking the entire Roman world. And Christians actually acted in such ways to prepare for it. Right. Kind of like in the time of Joseph. And that was a telling of the future. 
Yeah. Right. So I do think that there are times when the prophetic gifts do that. They, sh- they give people some of what we would have thought of as the secret will of God. Mm-hmm. He reveals it to us because he wants us to prepare and get ready and act. So I don't, I don't write that off. That's a, that's a real thing. Yeah. Um, I will only listen to a prophet that is pretty proven. Yeah. That gives those kinds of prophecies. Yeah. Right. A, a very simple and quick example. Um, somebody came to us a few years ago and said, um, there's a particular kind of spiritual and demonic attack that's going to come at high point. It's going to be sort of like this. You need to prepare for it. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it was like kind of future telling in other ways it was like, yeah, no, duh. I know Satan's going to attack the church right. like and me as the pastor. Right. Uh, but at the same time, there were some things in that where I was like, okay, I, this could be from the Lord. And if it's not, it won't matter. Um, if I, if I prepare, right. It'll be be helpful. It'll be good to prepare in that way anyways. Right. Right. And so I don't think what it said happened, but I think it, because it was a self-defeating prophecy, if it, if that person was right, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. If I did what I was supposed to do. So there are cases in which I've received prophecies like that personally, and I've acted upon them personally. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in that case, it's not confirming because it's a self-defeating prophecy. I can't know from that person's prophetic action if it actually was a prophecy or not. Right. But I still thought it was worth listening to. And I think it probably was. But I, yeah. I can't. I can't. know. there's no empirical verification for it. Yeah. Because there couldn't be. Yeah. You know. So this one from August 8th says... Uh, regarding your list at the end of the sermon of realistic impossibilities that our sin inhibits, when you state them as you did, it's fairly obvious what we that what we want is impossible because of our sin and twisted thinking. How do we identify those realities when we are in the middle of quote unquote it? So this is like when you were saying, you know, it's like trying to pursue a good marriage while lying to your wife or like get re rattled off several of these examples. How do you how can we identify them when we're in the middle of them? I don't, I mean, I don't really know the answer to that other than pursue godliness, like read the scriptures, yeah. grow in humility and honesty, um, be part of the body of Christ and have people who can rebuke you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I, there is, there's no shortcut. Yeah. Right. It, it comes from study and contemplation and confession and meditation mm-hmm. on the truth of God. And on the truth of what we are ourselves and, um, do that every day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that people, I mean, one of the things that really bothers me about myself and about the American church, I think one of the reasons why she is weak, isn't just the worldliness on the outside. A big part of it, in my opinion, is that most Christians are either completely prayerless or their prayer is just utter parrot talk. Hmm. which means that they're actually behaving like a wizard or a magician rather than a praying saint. (laughs) And so in a a number of charismatic circles I'm in, I think the people praying think that they're magicians. Hmm. They just keep repeating themselves over and over and over again. Like it's an, it's an incantation and that that needs to happen for God to listen to them. I Hmm. think it's a, a misappropriation of, the statement in Luke's gospel that the persistent widow came to the unjust judge over and over again. And that unjust judge eventually gave her justice. Um, But 
Jesus explicitly says that the pagans go on and on and on in their prayers because they think the dynamic of them being heard is something other than a loving person hears them and acts. Mm-hmm. And the book of Ecclesiastes says that God is in heaven. Let your words be few. I mean, he, he's a sovereign God. You don't have to say a bunch of stuff to get him to do anything. I think most of our prayers are way too long. Yeah. Right. And so don't pray like you're a magician or a wizard. Right. Pray to God who is a person. But then on the other side of things, there are a lot of us just we just don't pray. Mm-hmm. Like we don't stop and talk to the invisible God who we believe is there, who acts on the basis of prayer and who which we we need to speak to for our own good. Um, simply the act of consciously imagining yourself in his presence is one of the most therapeutic things a human being can do for their, not just for their healing, but for their growth. Yeah. Um, I know people who like just, um, just praying and as engaging in praying, imagining yourself in the presence of God lies, they believe about themselves and falsehoods. They're telling others become unthinkable. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like, oh, I'm lying to myself and I'm lying to everybody else. You just right. know it. <laughs> right. And right. like, even if I think that would work, that would work some, even if God didn't exist, even if you were mm-hmm. mentally projecting the other undeniable, unmanipulatable person, even if they were a projection of your imagination, mm-hmm. it would still have this healing effect. And you're not projecting your imagination. You are, I mean, that is happening. You mm-hmm. are projecting in your imagination your conceptualization of God, but also God is there, who is in some cases more, in some cases less, like the God you are mentally projecting to be there. Right. Right. And to the extent to which it's like the God who is there, it makes it increasingly psychologically impossible to be an idiot mm-hmm. and a jerk and a liar and a wanton and a fool and a malicious person. Yeah. And that is a God has made our capacity to worship and commune with him. Also a locus for, for psychosomatic psychological something. I don't know what you want to call it. Self healing and self development. Yeah. And that's what prayer really is. And we have this like stupid, well, I'm talking to ceiling and it feels like nobody's there kind of <laughs> attitude about it. And, and listen, I understand that because that's how I feel a lot mm-hmm. of the time when I'm trying to pray. I'm not good at praying. And at the same time, I have experienced incredible benefits of praying, both in terms of existentially feeling like God is there and he's close to me and hearing me and speaking to me. Sometimes the most important insights in my life come up out of some place in me that I don't even understand, either by God's spirit or because of the state God has brought me into in prayer, or I've been healed or I've been encouraged or my anxiety has been abated or whatever because of the extremely, for me, hard and difficult work prayer is to allow my mind to be quiet, to be fully honest before God, to tell God what I really think, to ask him for what I really need and for me to express how I really feel. Recognizing that God does not cease to be himself, Mm -hmm. that he is a terrifying other who will not repent of his own character in his relationship to me. Yeah. And that the loving word he speaks back will be a compassionate truth. Yeah. Full of candor. And it's an amazing experience and one that we just avoid sub semi and, and overtly consciously in incredibly consistent ways. And it's, it's incredibly sad. And I do not think we can be the kind of Christians we have to be or the church we must be without a reawakening, just an utter reawakening in the importance of prayer. 
yeah. and worship. And by that, I don't mean 24-7 prayer house, charismaniac, like blah, 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 blah. Though I'm not attacking those things. I think a lot of good things happen at those places. Yeah. But I think that if I if I put like a caricature in your mind or I let you caricature what I'm saying, you might find a way to dismiss it as the listener. And I'm saying don't. There is a thing called prayer that most of us have never really experienced. Mm-hmm or have not embraced by faith, no matter what we're experiencing. And it, it, God will do so much more in and through you than you ever thought. If you will trust him in just that one spiritual discipline combined with the reading of scripture openly and honestly and meditatively. I believe those two spiritual disciplines alone can do incredibly transformative things, especially if you add the third of being part of the local church. Yeah. That's why one of the reasons I'm an evangelical is I believe that just those three disciplines being part of the local church, Oh, okay. So I'll add a fourth. Okay. This is four. Being part of the local church, being public about your faith, mm-hmm. reading the Bible carefully and meditatively, and truly being a person of prayer, even if for short periods of time, but like actually praying to a God who is there. Yeah. Those four things can unbelievably transform your life and the lives of others. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think that's so good because I've noticed in my life, absolutely times where, um, where, yeah, like the, the decision of, yeah, like projective imagination uh, of, of really taking a moment to be like, okay, I am, I am in the presence of God. It's like, oh, I've forgotten in the other times that I was praying, that I'm praying to God. And instead, I'm just saying things I think I should be saying. And just that, just taking that moment to think, okay, I am in the presence of the real living God just, just changes the way I pray. Yeah, there's a great passage. I can't remember what letter in the Screwtape Letters it is, but there's one where Screwtape is talking about prayer. And he's like, you know, most people just pair talk and then they try to evoke in themselves the appropriate feeling mm-hmm. relative to the thing they're praying for. So they, when they, they pray for patience, they try to create the feeling of being patient in themselves. Mm-hmm. Or if they pray for peace, they try to like generate the feeling of peace instead of just literally asking God for peace. Right. And, and yeah, there's a lot of ways to like get confused about prayer and for then it to be very unhelpful for you. Um, but pursuing the real thing is very necessary, I think. I don't, I, I don't think there's any substitute for prayer. Yeah, yeah. How does the passage relating to God judging via sword, pestilence, etc. that we read on this Sunday relate to Elijah meeting God at Horeb and God not being present in any of the calamities, but instead being present in the silence? I think that they are related in that they're in the same book we call the Bible. (laughs) And that there's a similar actor called God uh, in those two. Yeah. Yeah. um, And listen, I'm not saying that there's no exegetical relationship between those two things at all, Mm -hmm. but I don't know of one. Um, Partly because God's four judgments in Ezekiel 14 are not the same things as that are in that passage in with Elijah at Mount Horeb there, uh, you know, those, those four things, those things with Elijah at Mount Horeb are big, powerful things Mm -hmm. that you could think of as destructive things. But I think that the difference is, is that the things at Mount Horeb are loud, powerful, evocative things. Yeah. And you would be like, these are the acts of God and God's voice wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And instead he was silent in the still small voice. Um, that passage is kind of a strange one in the Bible in that it doesn't obviously relate to other passages. Mm. And, um, 
in interpreting passages that don't have it, that aren't part of an an obvious mixture of other passages, it's hard to always know exactly what they mean. It's like figuring out what words mean when you don't have other uses of the word to compare it to. Right. You know, meaning is contextual is is contextual in certain ways, and um. And so, you know, you want to interpret the Bible with the Bible. And so you do want to try to draw out connections where they do exist. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really bothers me about a lot of theological academic writers and commentators is I believe that they create connections where they don't exist. Mm-hmm. And then they come to conclusions that I think are probably really wrong. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So I don't think everything in the Bible relates to everything in the Bible directly. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes things relate conceptually when they don't relate like linguistically or in, or like in the narrative style or something like that, you know, or the words, the or like the same word is used, but we're not supposed to read one passage into the other just because the same right. word is used, even right. though conceptually they might be related, you know? So I, I tend to be a little bit more careful about relationships between words and contexts than others. Yeah. And so there might be commentators out there that think that the two are just so obviously connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I tend to, I just tend to think that like when your job is to find connections in the Bible, you're just prone to, to find, find them when, right. where they're not there, right. you know, right? Or to overdo them, you know? right? Yeah. So, yeah. So we can end there, or you can you can do some like I'll give less than a thirty second answer to a few. Sure. Yeah. We could we could run through a couple of these with uh just a few, and I'll give like a I'll set my timer for one minute. Yeah. Or I'll set it. I'll set it for forty five seconds. Let's do that. Perfect. Half the normal time. Um. So let's go back to a question on. This one is from July 25th. Should we focus our evangelistic efforts on people who seem less hardened against God? Yes. Boom. Less than 45 seconds. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say ignore the other people. Yeah. Um, but, I, but when Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before swine. Right. I think that there is some implication there for that. Yes. You said that God will refuse us situationally in order to capture our hearts permanently. Does God ever refuse us permanently? Yes, that is possible. Christians call it damnation. Right. Um, if we die in our sins and we um, allow our opportunity for redemption to fully expire in the sovereign choice of God's in giving us a certain extended life, then yes. God has at that point given us many chances in grace and has, and those have run out. Yeah. And then he confirms what we have chosen. Yeah. Judicially. Next question is, I have heard from other pastors that it is dangerous to turn our relationship of God into a study of God, where people turn from having a relationship with God to having a theological theory. How can we avoid this while still studying and seeking to follow his revealed will? Yeah. So this is one of those statements that can either be incredibly great pastoral advice mm-hmm. or a really ridiculous excuse to be anti-intellectual right. and right. shallow. Right. And so it just depends on how, what you take it to me. So mm-hmm. like if you are studying and you become like the Pharisees where Jesus says, um, you study the scriptures, you memorize them, and you think you have in them you have life. Mm-hmm. And, and, but you won't believe in me or come to me, right? Then that is good advice for people like that. 
if people are like, look, I have this mystical relationship with God and I like know God and I'm not going to cheapen that by mm-hmm. studying the Bible. I'm mm-hmm. just kind of like, that's like telling a girl you just met that, you know, you have a connection with her. So let's get married, but let's never have a conversation about what you love and what you like and what your background's <laughs> like and any of that kind of stuff. Cause right. I don't want to know you. Right. I just want to feel this feeling and have this relationship. Like that's a really bad way to think about how to have a relationship. Yeah. So I would say if you really love God and have a relationship with him, you should, you should want to know more, but how can you mm-hmm. know more reliably about God? And the answer right. is through his special revelation of the man, Jesus Christ and his history with his own people and what he's spoken through his apostles, which are canonized in this thing we call the Bible, mm-hmm. which then you should read and study to learn about your God. But yeah. yes, as you do that, don't mistake the thing you're reading for the person himself. Right. And don't so concoct a religious philosophy that you are that you worship that and you are you are formed by that rather than your belief in God. Right. And you can tell if that's happening by whether or not you wish to worship and or pray. Yeah. Are two I, yeah. big tests. I remember you've you've said in the past that we we sometimes try to apply a solution that the the solution that we try to apply to our to what seems like our problem is oftentimes the thing that magnifies our problem. Like, so like in our current moment, it's like, Oh, we need to be more accepting of like sexual promiscuity. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, that's, that's the problem you have. So that's what we should have been doing in the 1940s in a way, like like not, not accepting promiscuity, but being less sexually repressed and more able to talk about our sexual problems. Right. That's probably not the problem now. Right. Right. And so, but in the 1940s or twenties, they were like, we need to be less expressive about these sexual things when it was literally mm-hmm. the opposite problem. Yeah. Lewis talks, that's from the screw tape letters where he's like, right. everybody's reacting to the last generation's problems. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's, I think there's a way you can do this with this question that like, Absolutely. you can be like, we can, the, the person who is already not prone to study God's word can yeah. then take that as an excuse to not study God's word. And the person who is just interested in study, who's not interested in trying to relate to God as a person mm-hmm. can say, Oh, well you don't have a, you don't have a well-defined view of who God is. So you need to read, you need to only read the word more. So yeah, I think they're just be aware of that in yourself. Um, what is a healthy way to pursue God's revealed will without becoming legalistic? I mean, the short answer I think is do it for love. Mm. Do it because it, what it, what he says is good and is true. It is beautiful and it's for people's flourishing and also know what legalism is and always be on guard for it. Mm-hmm. You know? Can you speak on 1 Corinthians 14, 1, in which we are commanded to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that we may prophesy? Isn't it different today and in the New Testament because as believers, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us? I think answer that that second part of it, but also that the first part of it, like how should we earnestly desire the spiritual gifts? So, yeah, the command in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 is, is pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. And especially the gift of, that you may prophesy or the gift of prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, the verbal construction there is in the present continuative, meaning keep on doing it. And this passage in First Corinthians is, of course, post-Pentecost. So it's in the age of the presence of the Spirit. Yeah. And so it is telling me, it is telling all people that though we're going to pursue love, like First Corinthians 13 just argued, right? We also should de- yet desire or earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. 
mm-hmm. right? Especially prophecy. And then he goes on to discuss prophecy more. So yeah, I, this is exactly what it says yeah. and nothing has changed. Um, and one of the proofs that nothing has changed is in the previous chapter where the apostle Paul says that um, speaking in tongues and prophecy and those sorts of gifts will last until perfection comes. Mm-hmm. And in the context there, it is the reversal of seeing as in a mirror dimly yeah, and being full and knowing God fully, even as we're fully known, which is not the canonization of the new Testament mm-hmm. and the Bible. It is the return of Jesus. Yeah. So, so Paul ex- as explicitly as you can says these gifts will last until the return of Jesus. Given that that's true. Chapter 14 is an expression of how we should understand that, which is that we should earnestly pursue spiritual gifts. And one of the, the gift that we probably should wish to pursue more than anything else is prophecy mm-hmm. because prophecy exerts good in the lives of other people by exhorting them, by encouraging them, by helping them. So if we really want to help others through love, prophecy is an incredibly good way to do that. And we should earnestly desire it. Yep. Right. And then he goes on to regulate it in right. that chapter by saying, as everybody desires this and people want to do it, you know, we do have to have some parameters and here's what they are. Does that make sense? So I do think people should earnestly pursue spiritual gifts. Yep. And I think that they should not shy away from the weirder ones mm-hmm. like tongues and prophecy. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should pursue the, the gift of prophecy. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no issues with that at all. I, yeah. And I do think it's the case. And I think particularly at high point church, Right. This is still a command for us, even if we don't say well, we're a charismatic church. Well, listen, we say we're a, a Bible believing church and here this is in the Bible. And there's no honest way that I can tell to interpret this, which doesn't include accepting its command as present now. Right. So right. let's do a final two questions. Okay. So this one is from a podcast. Um, we, we recently put out a podcast that was an interview that you had um, with Vasily, I forget his last name, um, yeah, I talking about? I can't but talking about, we were talking about some of what it was like to be behind the iron curtain and things like that. So, uh, this is what the question says. I appreciated the recent podcast interview with Vasily where I'm still struggling and hoping you can help to clarify is that when I read through scripture, I do see parts of socialism woven into God's design. I definitely see parts of capitalism as well. Private property, work ethic, competition for goods and services, services, etc. Maybe I'm way off the mark and I completely agree that pure socialism is in itself not what we as Christians should pursue, but I'm not sure if it's right to completely deny that all parts of socialistic society are wrong, just as I think it would not be wise to state that all parts of a capitalistic society are uh, is correct, as it often leads to greed, futuring, or furthering oppression of the poor, etc. Can you help me to better understand passages in the Old Testament that sure sound a lot like socialism? Yeah. Okay. So I think it's important to recognize that when that one of the things he says is, um, should we did should we believe that all parts of socialistic society are wrong? And I think, well, I mean, the way that's phrased, absolutely not. Right. There's right. all kinds of things in a socialistic society that aren't inherently wrong. The, the question is, is does it promote human flourishing and is it just and morally right for the government to own the means of production or to so regulate and control the means of production. That is what we, what generates our economic activity mm-hmm. such that the government controls it, right? right. Either through um, presumably democratic means or through non-democratic means. Right yeah. now, I don't think that the Bible explicitly answers that in the most possible direct way. However, I think that the Bible affirms certain things that make socialism very difficult and would perhaps cripple 
the possibility of a governmental socialism. For example, I think the Bible supports the idea of private property. Yep. Um, also, depending on how you think through the concept of slavery, that people don't get to enjoy the work of their hands and what they do is controlled by others. Mm-hmm. Most socialistic societies historically have controlled both whether or not people receive the productivity of the work of their own hands. And in many cases, what jobs they could or could not do. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's lots of things like that. Um, most of the arguments that I know of against socialism are not against socialism per se, that like the Bible says the government can't own the means of production, but that the Bible is against everything, all of the assumptions built yeah. into state yeah. socialism, like that collectivism should be totalistic, mm-hmm. right? That your individual responsibility to the larger collective is total or mm-hmm. it's whatever the collective says it is, yeah. right? So which, which completely undermines the concepts of individualism that like you have certain yeah. inherent rights that are not subject to the will of the majority, right? Um, morality is by definition anti-majoritarian. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Um, so I think that there are many, many, many things built, in, built into biblical Christian ethics, both individualistically and socially, that are unworkable within a socialistic framework, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, however, I do think the Bible has room for many different forms of government. Yeah. And I don't think that the Bible explicitly outlaws socialism. Mm-hmm. I think that the best arguments against socialism are demonstrating that in virtually all socialist societies, many things that Christianity affirms strongly are undermined greatly. Yeah. Yeah. Also that most of the people who have led socialist movements have seen Christian faith as one of their biggest, the biggest thing standing in their way mm-hmm. and things Christianity, Christianity utterly affirms like the family um, I also think that historically socialism has been connected with very irreligious um, sub movements that are usually atheistic. That was true in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, China, and many other places. Yeah. Um, so, so part of it, and also the Christian Church has been horrifically, terribly, and explicitly and ubiquitously tortured, attacked. Yeah persecuted, undermined, outlawed, subverted in virtually every truly socialist society in the world. One of the things people often don't understand is that um, the the countries that are often pointed to explicitly say they're not socialist. Denmark, Sweden, places like that. When, when people say, oh, they're socialist, those places explicitly say, we are not socialist. Mm-hmm. We are heavy welfare states. And there are lists, global lists of the freest economies in the world. In many cases, the Scandinavian, quote, socialist countries have freer economies than America. It's easier to fire people, easier to hire people, easier to start a business, easier to do all of those things. That is, the means of production are more privatized than in America. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that like America is going to become a socialist country, America's already half socialist. Yeah. So like, like we're not this capitalist country that might become socialist. We're half socialist right now. The question is, are we going to become socialist in all these other bad ways? Yeah. Right. The, this Another problem is, is that socialism tends to bring out the worst in human character. See, within capitalism, if it is protected by the rule of law, 
um, in order for you to make money, you have to give me something I value and will freely give you money for. Mm-hmm. Now, m- that can invoke greed in you, but it only invokes greed in you to the ex- extent to which you still serve me. So you can say, I want to make $100,000. Well, fine. Instead of $50,000. Well, fine. You have to find a way to make that worth it to me. I have to freely give you that $100,000. Yeah. And if I freely give it to you, if it evokes greed that you shouldn't have done, it's because you work yourself to death. Mm-hmm. It's not because you stole from me. Does that make sense? You yeah. provided me with $100,000 or more in value. You right. made my life better. The free market, to the extent to which it's governed by law, forces people into accountable relationships of love with other people. Mm-hmm. You have to know me enough to know what I want, what I value, what I want you to do. Then you have to choose to serve me, give me something I want. And then in exchange, I give you something you value, which in this case is money, by which you go out and buy what you want. Yeah. In that sense, the free market, when there is also the rule of law, private property, and, and a certain number of other like ordering things forces us into economic relationships with each other, which are categorically better than political relationships that are ordered by power. Right. Power right. relationships are always going to be worse, more corrupting than economic relationships of free exchange. So mm-hmm. if we have to say, well, what do you want 80% of your society to be? Well, you've got a choice, right? It can be civil society, which is complete. Um, it can be, com- it's complete um, voluntary association. In which money may or may not be exchanged, right? Then there's economic society, which is kind of like civil society, but it's more formalized in financial exchange, right? And then there's political society, which are the movement of power between people with a capacity to coerce others. Now, mm-hmm. in my the, my ideal world, the, the most you could have human society would be in the first two categories. Yeah. Right? Now, a libertarian would say, well, what about the individual? Okay, add the individual. So you got four categories. As much as possible would be in the first three categories and as little as possible in the political category. Mm-hmm. I think that is the fundamental teaching against socialism. Yeah. That um, that socialism ends up falling into all the pitfalls of, all, of collectivisms. Mm-hmm. And those are horrific. Yeah. Um, and so that is one. Of, I think that's what kind of Vasily was getting at. Yeah. Um, but also, listen, um, don't forget that there are systems that could have been good but they are inherently corrupting. Mm-hmm. And as systems, right. my belief about the history of the world is, is that capitalism looks like the worst, but actually is the best. And that it gives the most to the most people. Mm-hmm. Socialism to many people looks like the best, but is the worst. Mm-hmm. Because the what, what happens when you combine it with human beings is terrible things. Yeah. Not just in terms of people start killing each other and they get as ruthless as Stalin, but they also, they just do incredibly irresponsible things. Like all of our socialist programs in America, like our redistribution programs, they're all going bankrupt. We literally have 28 trillion in debt. We spend twice our created GDP, almost like, like our government spending is almost double the receipts of our government and mm-hmm. is approaching like almost all of the economic activity of our whole country in the course of a year. That is... We are acting so irresponsibly. It's it's almost you almost can't describe how irresponsible that we're being. And yet we're supposed to be this like well-managed, responsible, educated, good, generous nation. But what we're doing is we're spending our great grandchildren's money right now and saying, screw you, you, you'll be rich enough to pay off our debts. Yeah. Right. So socialistic enterprises like the welfare state 
aren't just the places where the most ruthless will rise to power. They're also the places where the people as a whole collectively will do the most irresponsible things. Mm-hmm. And those are functions of human nature. They're not really changeable unless the entire society was virtuous. But right. socialism tends to also right. undermine the institutions that that create and foster virtue. virtue in the strongest ways, i.e. the family, the church, <clears throat> and the other institutions of civil society that socialist governments see as competition to themselves, where right. socialist governments tend to focus all of their energy on the government schools – Mm-hmm. And the other government mechanisms that raise the children to believe in what the socialist government wants to teach, yeah. which tends to lead to highly unvirtuous populations and generations of citizens. Yeah. If you if you want to have a view on socialism, you have to read The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek or the and or The Fatal Conceit by F.A. Hayek. And you need to read at least the abridged version of the Gulag Archipelago. Yeah. You have to understand what's happened historically in these countries. And yeah. you have to recognize, too, that even in countries like Sweden and Denmark, those are welfare states that are slowly going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons Sweden can do what it did is because in the 50s through the 70s and before, they had extremely poor, highly prosperous, super incredibly hardworking people. These were mm-hmm. the people who, who emigrated to America and built the Midwest and made the Midwest and America rich. Yeah. It's it's like it's off of the backs of the produced wealth of those generations that we are now squandering. So we used up all of their wealth, two generations that came before us, and now we're spending two or three generations after us mm-hmm. and saying, look, our economic system works. And it doesn't. We're thieves. Yeah. And if you don't if you don't start from those premises, then yeah, sure. Welfare states and, and socialism, which is even worse than a regulated welfare state, makes some sense. Yeah. But Generally speaking, anything that gets into the political realm, just all, all the incentives tend to be perverse. Yeah. Unless they're very simple, like you're the military, win the war. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so would you say that's, that's a little bit of a dump of political philosophy there, but yeah, it was, that was a, it was 45 second answer from, from Pastor Nick Gibson. <laughs> but I think, no, I think that's really good to cover, to cover that stuff. And so would you say like the, I mean, maybe this is an oversimplified version of this, but some of what's happening in the Old Testament passages is some of the quote unquote sort of redistribution that's happening in those is happening primarily in civil society as opposed to being mandated by political power. And so that's some of what the distinction is between an Old Testament passage that seems to say, hey, we should we should redistribute wealth as opposed to socialism. Um, so I think it depends on the passage. So, so for example, the gleaning passages that like you couldn't go back over your field and you couldn't thresh the edges of the field so that the poor could come and collect that food. Mm -hmm. Um, that is property that those people owned. They had the right to, right. And yet at the same time, they were demanded to do certain acts of charity. Mm Mm-hmm. So you you cannot find unmitigated capitalism in the Old Testament. Yeah, there's all there's always this recognition that like there will always be losers mm-hmm. in the capitalist in in a, a, a healthy economy, and some provision must be made for them. It is not a lucrative pr- provision, but it is a provision. Yeah, and um, and spe- mainly and specifically for the unfortunately poor. Yeah, does that make sense? Um. So the concept of taxation can be defended from the Bible, mm-hmm. um, that like the government can expect some things from you, 
also the idea of that the poor have a certain kind of right um, to be maintained. Yeah. But obviously that can get mystified very quickly, but, but that like you have to take care of the poor or you're not Mm -hmm. just, Um, but what rights the poor has, how those interact with the wealth of other stuff, I think can get convoluted really fast. Yeah. Um, But the baseline, the baseline old Testament teaching relative to government is that you shouldn't need a government. Right. First of all, because right. you should be just in virtue of stuff that you don't even need them. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, you'll need very little governance. Therefore, you want as little governance as possible. God's God's purposeful governments in the Torah was that the government not even have an executive branch. Yeah. And not a, not a legislative one either. You couldn't make new laws. Like it was just like these are the laws. Like you should just be able to just do them and live. And so you had tribal chiefs that did some of the judging. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. And then when they wanted a king, God's like, um, you don't want a king. Yeah, because inherent to government power is corruption. Right. And he's like, he'll take everything from you. He'll take all the best of everything. And you think you want that? You don't want that. And they're like, we want it. And he's like, all right, mm-hmm. here we go. Yeah. So the Old Testament's view of centralized government and the governments of the like the governments of the peoples is something God never wanted because he wanted us to have a non-tyrannical, non-corrupt king. And the only one who could be that was him. Yeah. But the only way to be governed that way is to be a people of virtue, which we're not, right? right. Part of the story of the Old Testament is we we can't live by laws. We right. don't. Right. And so that's why heaven – I mean think about this. People are really angry about who gets into heaven who who doesn't. The, the, the answer of who gets into heaven is who's willing to submit to the king in a country in which there needs to be no government. Mm-hmm. Are you the kind of person who can be a citizen in a country that needs no government? And the answer is no, not without the full redemption of Christ and in, right. uh, into ultimate glorification, because right. God's not going to have some kind of big bureaucracy. We're all going to be just in heaven. There will be no need for governance. God mm-hmm. will just be our king. And yeah. so, but that doesn't exist here on earth. We do need governance to a certain extent, but the founding fathers of the United States believed that the predominance of bi- the biblical teaching mediated through the enlightenment technologies of governmental structure through Montesquieu and others was to have a divided, limited, small central government that -hmm. could do an enumerated number of things that couldn't tax the people in most ways, um, where all the incentives were for local control. And if you look at the history of America, most of the amendments to the American constitution has been undoing those things. Yeah. And, um, whether or not that's good or bad, I mean, I guess depends on, on the def- your definitions and understandings relative to the prudences of what you know. But I think the things that the founding fathers feared are happening. Yeah. yeah. Now, whether you think that's progress or not, I guess is a, it depends on your view of the world. <clears throat> yeah. Let's do our final question, which is a few sermons ago, Nick said that many Christians understand Christianity as a life of suffering and that our job as Christians is to endure that suffering in a godly way and that this view is mostly right. I feel like this is what I was taught growing up and it is hard for me to understand how to respond when God gives blessing and goodness and joy. How should I respond? With thankfulness and joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you enjoy it. I mean, imagine like um, soldiers um, pushing their way to Berlin 
and they're fighting horrific, terrible battles in which they see children killed, their best friends killed. And they, they win a fight. And in one of the back rooms of one of the houses in Southern France is this like big crate of wine and Parmesan cheese. Mm -hmm. And you carry the thing out into the sunlight and you find some like baguettes or something like leftover from some rations somewhere. (laughs) And in the open sunlight, you drink the wine and you eat the bread and the cheese and you let the sun shine down on your face and you enjoy that at that moment, you're not at war. Mm-hmm. At that moment, you're drinking wine and eating bread and cheese and you just enjoy it. Yeah. And you know that tomorrow you may be fighting again. Yeah. And you don't cling to it. You don't, you don't pack up the bottles of wine and put them in your knapsack and mm-hmm. like, well, maybe I can, you know, hold on to this. No, no, you just enjoy it. Yeah. Knowing that you could lose it tomorrow. You know, and I think that there's a, there's got to be a certain kind of mentality in us where like you can understand, you can enjoy what's in front of you. You can enjoy what's in your hands without grabbing a hold of it and clinging to it yeah. and just accepting it and being And I, I honestly, I think it's, I think the best, this is going to sound like psycho babble, but there's a sense in which I think it's true. I think one of the best preparations for ex- experiencing eternity is living entirely in the moment in the right kind of way. Hmm. Cause I don't think you'll be worried about the future and I don't think you'll be lamenting the past. I think you'll be fully in the present mm-hmm. and, and in some ways all moments will be present. And I think similarly, like I think you can have wisdom for the future in, in while you're experiencing the moment. And I think, so I don't, I don't mean that like a bohemian, like have sex with whoever you can, you know, like that's not what I mean. Yeah. I mean though, that you can plan for the future enough to do your duty as CS Lewis says while being in the right, this moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that's how you experience God's blessings, right? You don't cling to them in a way that is wrong and you accept them when they come. And sometimes life is very good, but also recognizing your neighbor and the poor Mm -hmm. that things may not be good for them. And you know, they're not for the poor that you also let that um, well up and you love and generosity. So yeah. the, what I pray every night at grace, when we get to eat at our house, which is most nights, you know, is God help us to eat this food with thankfulness towards you and worship and to honor your gift to us by loving each other. Mm. And that's the best I know. Yeah. And that I try to eat the food with thankfulness and joy and love all the people I'm eating with. Yeah. You know? yeah that's good. All right. We made it through pretty much all of them all so right, cool. caught back up well i want to congratulate the listener listener for getting through <laughs> um ama episode three mm-hmm. um the uh the the number of topics and the variation between topics yeah, it's, yeah. all right we'll see you guys next time see you later If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. 
Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.